0: Chapter 6 of To London Town. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. To London Town. By Arthur Morrison. Chapter 6. Bob Smallpiece and a police inspector busied themselves that night at Wormlaton Pits. The pits were none of them deep, six feet at most. At the bottom of the deepest, they found Old May's Lantern with the glass broken, and the candle overrun and extinguished, and the gravel was spotted with marks which, in the clearer light of the morning, were seen to be marks of blood. It was useless to look for footprints. The ground was dry, and except in the pits themselves, it was covered with heather, whereon no such traces were possible. And this was all the police had to say at the inquest, whereat the jury gave a verdict of accidental death. For the old man had died, as was medically certified after post-mortem examination, of brain laceration produced by fracture of the base of the skull, and the fracture was caused by percussion from a blow on the upper part of the head, a blow probably suffered by falling backward into the pit and striking the head against a large stone embedded at the bottom. Everything suggested such an explanation. Above the steepest wall of the pit, over which the fall must have chanced, a narrow ledge of ground ran between the brink and a close clump of bramble and bush, and this ledge was grown thick with tough heather, as apt, almost, as a tangle of wire, to catch the foot and cause a stumble. It was plain that, stooping to his occupation on this ledge, and perhaps forgetting his situation in the interest of his search, he had fallen backward into the pit with a lantern. He had probably lain there insensible for some while, and then, developing a crazed half-consciousness, he had crawled out of the easy slope at the farther end, and staggered off whithersoever his disjointed faculties might carry him. Nobody had seen him but his grandson and the keeper, so that the verdict was a matter of course, and the dismal inquiry was soon done with. And indeed the jury knew all there was to know, unless it were a trivial matter of some professional interest to Bob Smallpiece, about which the police preferred to have nothing said, since it could not help the jury, though it might chance later to be of some use to themselves. It was simply the fact that several very fresh peg holes were observed about the pits, hinting a tearing away of rabbit snares with no care to hide the marks. The days were bad dreams to Johnny, He found himself continually repeating in his mind that Grandad was dead, Grandad was dead, as though he were forcing himself to learn a lesson that persistently slipped his memory. Well enough he knew it, and it puzzled him that he should find it so hard to believe, and mostly so easy a grief. As he woke in the morning, the thought struck down his spirits, and then, with an instant revulsion, he doubted it was but the aftertaste of a dream. And there lay the empty half of the bed they were wont to share, and the lessons began again. He went about the house. Here was a sheet of Grandad's list of trades, pinned to the wall, there the unfinished case of moths for which the customer was waiting. These, and the shelves, and the breeding boxes, all were as parts of the old man, impossible to consider apart from his active, white-headed figure. In some odd, hopeless way, they seemed to suggest that it was all right, and that Grandad was simply in the garden, or upstairs, or in the back house, and presently would come in as usual and put them all to their daily uses. And it was only for dint of stern concentration of thought that Johnny forced on himself the assurance that the old man would come along his cases no more, nor ever again discuss with him the list of London trades. Then the full conviction struck him sorely, like a blow behind the neck, the heavy stroke of bereavement, and the sick fear of the world for his mother and sister together. But there he was merely torturing himself. He took refuge in a curious callousness that he could call back very easily when he would. So the days went, But with each new day, the intermissions of full realization grew longer, till plain grief persisted in a leaden ache, rarely broken by a spell of apathy. His mother and sister went about household duties silently, not often apart. They were comforted in companionship, it seemed, but solitude brought tears and heartbreak. Nan May's London upbringing caused her some thought of what her acquaintances there would have called a proper funeral. But here, the machinery of such funerals must be brought from a distance, thus becoming doubly expensive. And this being the case, cottagers made very little emulation at such times, and a walking funeral, perhaps at best a cab from the rank at Lawton Station, satisfied most. Moreover, the old man himself had many a time preached strong disapproval of money wasted on funerals, had indeed prophesied that if any costliness were wasted on him, he would rise from his coffin and kick a mute. So now that time had come, a Thaden carpenter made the coffin, and a cab from Lawton, was the whole show. The old man's relations were not, and of Nan May's most still alive were forgotten. For in the forest cottage, the little family had been secluded from such connections, as by sundering seas. At first they had seemed too near for correspondence, and then they had been found too far for visiting. Uncle Isaac came to the funeral, however, and though in the beginning he seemed prepared for solemn declaration, something in the sober grief at the cottage made him unwontedly quiet. It was a short coffin, accommodated under the cabman's seat, with no great protrusion at the ends, what there was being covered decently with a black cloth, and the cab held the mourners easily, Johnny and Bessie in their Sunday clothes, their mother in hers. They had always been black since she was first a widow, and Uncle Isaac, in a creasy suit of lustrous black, oddly bunched and wrinkled at the seams, the conventional Sunday suit of his generation of artisans, folded carefully and long preserved, and designed to be available alike for church... "'and for such funerals as might come to pass. "'A brisk wind stirred the trees "'and flung showers of fallen leaves "'after the shabby old four-wheeler "'as it climbed the lanes "'that led up to the little churchyard "'where the sexton and his old man "'waited with the planks and ropes "'by the new-dug grave. "'It was a bright afternoon, "'but a fresh chill in the wind "'hinted at the coming of winter. "'A belated red admiral "'seemed to chase the cab, "'fluttering this way or that, "'now by one window.' now by the other, and again away over the hedge top. Nothing was said. Now and again, Johnny took his eyes from the open window to look at his companions. His mother opposite sat, pale and worn, with her hands in her lap, and gazed blankly over his head at the front window of the cab. She was commonly a woman of healthy skin and colour, but now the skin seemed coarser, and there was no colour but the pink about her red eyelids. Uncle Isaac, next to her, sat forward, and rubbed his chin over and round the knob of his walking stick, a bamboo topped with a Turk's head of tarred cord. As for Bessie, sitting at the far end of his own seat, Johnny saw nothing of her face for her handkerchief and the crutch handle. But she was very quiet, and he scarcely thought she was crying. For himself, he was sad enough, in a heavy way, but in no danger of tears, and he turned again and looked out the window. At last the cab stopped at the Lich gate. Here, Bob Smallpiece unexpectedly appeared to lend a hand with the coffin, so that, with the sexton and the carpenter, who was the undertaker, Uncle Isaac, and the keeper, the cabman's help was not wanted. The cabman lingered a moment to shift clothes and aprons and to throw a glance or two after the little company as it followed the clergyman, and then he hastened to climb to his seat and drive after a young couple that he spied walking in the main road, for they were strangers and looked a likely fare back to the station. Johnny found the church much as it was on Sunday, except that today they sat near the front, and that he was conscious of a faint sense of family importance by reason of the special service, and the coffin so conspicuously displayed. A few neighbours, women mostly, were there too, and when the coffin was carried out to the grave, they grouped themselves a little way off in the background, with Bob Smallpeace farther back still. From the grave's edge one looked down over the countryside green and hilly and marked out in meadows by rows of elms with hedges at foot. The wind came up briskly and set the dead leaves going again and again, chasing them among the tombs and casting them into the new red road. Bessie was quiet no longer, but sobbed aloud, and Nan May took no more care to dry her eyes. Johnny made an effort that brought him near to choking, and then another, and then he fixed his attention on the cows in a meadow below, counted them with brimming eyes, and named them, for he knew them well, as accurately as the distance would let him. He would scarce trust himself to take a last look with the others at the coffin below and its bright tin plate, but fell straight away to watching a man mending thatch on the barn and wondering that he wore neither coat nor waistcoat in such a fresh wind. And so, except for a stray tear or two which nobody saw overflowing from their brimming eyes, he faced it out and walked away with the others under the curious gaze of the neighbors who lined up by the path. And Smallpiece went off in the opposite direction with the carpenter, who carried back the pall folded over his arm like a cloak. The four mourners walked back by the lanes in silence. Uncle Isaac bore the restraint with difficulty and glanced uneasily at Nan May's face from time to time, as though he we were watching an opportunity to expound his sentiments at length. But Johnny saw nothing of this, for affliction was upon him. Now that Grandad was passed away indeed, was buried, and the clods were rising quickly over him. Now that even the coffin was gone from the cottage and would never be seen again, it seemed that he had never understood before and he awoke to the full bitterness of things. More, his effort at restraint was spent and in the revulsion he found he could hold in no longer. He peeped into the thickets by the lane side as he went, questing for an excuse to drop behind. Seeing no other, he stooped and feigned to tie his bootlace, calling in a voice that quavered absurdly in trying to seem indifferent. "'Go on, mother. I'm coming presently.' He dashed among the bushes, flung himself on the grass, and burst into a blind fury of tears, writhing as though under a shower of stinging bolts. He had meant to cry quietly, but all was past control, and any might hear that chanced by. He scarce knew whether the fit had endured for seconds, minutes, or hours when he was aware of his mother sitting beside him and pressing his bursting head to her breast. Bessie was there too, and his mother's arms were around both alike. With that he grew quieter and quieter still. We mustn't break down, Johnny boy. There's hard struggles before us, his mother said, smoothing back his hair, and you must be very good to me, Johnny. You're the man now. He kissed her and brushed the last of his tears away. Yes, mother, I will, he said. He rose, calmer, awake to new responsibilities and felt a man indeed nothing remained of his outbreak but a chance coming shudder in the breath and as he helped bessie to her feet he saw five yards off among the bushes uncle isaac under his very tall hat gazing blankly at the group and gently rubbing the turk's head on his stick among the loose grey whiskers that bordered his large face end of chapter 6